The letter to the church of Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Revelation is Jesus is coming. Behold, he is coming. And I'll tell you, hip, hip, hooray, he is coming. Yes, and we know the book of Revelation was given to John on the Isle of Patmos when he was exiled by the emperor Domitian. And he thought he would get him out of the way and he had no impact anymore on the kingdom. But there the Lord Jesus gave him the book of Revelation, and he wrote it down, and he saw all these strange things, and it wasn't just conjecture that he was to make, he was simply to write what he saw. Remember this, John knew Jesus intimately. He was part of the inner circle, that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was in Gethsemane when Jesus was praying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will, Father. He was also, when Jesus was crucified, heard these words, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. As there was a handoff of Mother Mary to John to care for Jesus' mother. He knew him intimately, but yet when he sees the glorified Jesus that we noticed last week, that he fell at his feet as though he were dead. And know what Jesus did in his gentleness and in his kindness and his love. He lays his hand on John, and it's almost like, it is me, John. It is me. I am the guy that you knew so intimately. He touched him, and he tells him, do not be afraid. He tells him he, that I am he who lives and was dead. And what we got from that was something very significant, that at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. At the cross, our redemptive price was paid. At the cross, in the resurrection, death was conquered. And we no longer have to fear death. Hear what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And if you haven't ever circled and starred this verse, I would suggest that you do it. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, by the death of Messiah, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Remember, Jesus' resurrection conquered death. Satan had the power of death, so to speak, by bringing sin into the world. He couldn't just knock people off left and right as he wanted to. But sin brought death and destruction to the human condition, Jesus died for our sins and now allows those who believe in him to live forever. He conquered death. And John was told to write in the book. Remember last week there was an outline. We went through it in verse 19. You are to write down the things that you have seen. That was chapter 1. Then he was to write down, the second part was the condition of the churches, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3. And then the things that will take place, chapters 4 through 22, the consummation of human history, how Jesus is going to take back planet Earth and establish his thousand-year millennial kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever. Now remember that our culture has been inundated and overwhelmed by false gods, false worldviews, indoctrinations that have taken people away from the true God and tried to get them involved with false gods. Remember, everything is meant to take you away from the true God in this culture. Everything. Everything you see on TV. Very few things are drawing people to God. 
They are raising questions about God and encouraging people to go down different paths. Through it all, remember that we serve the Most High God. Remember, El Elyon. El God, Elyon, Most High God. That is the one that we serve. He is the one that reigns. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about the Church of Ephesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've gathered your people together to study the inerrant Word of God. Lord, we build our lives on this. Holy Spirit, speak to us things that you want us to hear. And what we hear, may we apply to our lives. May we heed the word of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a little bit of introduction here. Now, we're talking about the seven churches. Christ is addressing the seven churches. They are in Turkey. Uh, we know that Jesus is in the midst of the church. Remember, the lampstands in verse 13 are the, are the church, and he is walking in the midst of his church. And the information is for all the people, all the church people through all the epochs of time. There's only seven churches that are mentioned. And how Jesus views each church is the following. The church of Ephesus lost their first love. Now, that was tragic. That's right out of the gate. Literally one generation out, and they're losing their first love. The church of Smyrna was the next one. Persecuted church. Pergamos was the compromised church. Thyatira, the corrupt church. And then Sardis was the dead church. Philadelphia was the faithful church. And Laodicea is the lukewarm church. Now, I want you to think about something. These churches are all real churches. They existed in, in, in Turkey, in southwest Turkey. The order of the letters suggests that they represent passage of time. Ephesus is the first one. I want you to notice that Ephesus was a church that lost their first love, and very soon after this, we had Nero persecution, and there were for 10 Caesars, they experienced all kinds of murder and slaughter of Christians. This was the persecuted church. That was the second one that came in line, and so on. We are living, we believe that this thing is progressing towards the end of time, and we are living in what I believe the Laodicean age. We haven't covered that church, but you might know that it's the lukewarm church. It's the church that Jesus said he'll spew you out of his mouth. We are at the very bottom of this timeline with the church of Laodicea, the apostate church. This is the time that I believe that we're living in now. So, History reveals, again, an order to the progression of the churches. Now, the next question is this. Why only seven churches? Why only seven churches? There were other churches in the area like Troas and Miletus and Colossae and Hierapolis. The answer to that question is really simple. The seven churches are representative of all the churches that existed then and through the ages. All of them. The seven churches are present today. Now, hear this. When you're thinking about the churches, the, the seven churches, every church is going to resemble one of those churches. Now, within every church, you're going to have people that are representing those churches. You're going to have people that have lost their first love. You're going to have people that are experiencing some sort of persecution, some people that are compromised. But the totality of the church will be reflected by what the people believe in that church. We would like to believe that we are the, the church of Philadelphia. We're hopefully not going to be the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. like to skip that one if we could. But, if we, but those are the ones that receive no condemnation from Jesus. No condemnation. From, those were the really true ones. The other ones had all kinds of problems. And as I said, I believe now the main church that we're seeing today in the Western world, in America, in Canada, in Europe, in Australia, is the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, the apostasy church. Now, God uses the number seven frequently, and you know, the seven is a number of completion. There are seven stars, seven lampstands. We talked about seven seals, seven trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, that sort of thing the number of completion, the number of perfection. And it should be noted that Jesus says something negative, something negative to five of the churches, but nothing negative to two of the churches, Philadelphia and Smyrna. 
And I want you to think about this. There's the visible church and there's the invisible church. What do I mean by that? The invisible church is what God sees, how God sees his church. It's composed of true believers all over the world that encompass and make up the body of Christ, the body of Messiah. That's the invisible church. The visible church is what man sees as composed of believers and non-believers since Pentecost. Within every church, there are people that look good, sound good, but they've never really believed that Jesus died for their sins. And we know that by the wheat and the tares parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, where an enemy planted the tares in the wheat field. The wheat would be the true believers. The tares would look just like them until the harvest. And at the harvest, the head of the tare plant becomes very obvious that it's not wheat. And the angels were to collect them out at the harvest. People can fake it, folks. People can know the Christian lingo. They can convince those around them. They can even convince themselves that they're genuine. But they've never really received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. They like what they have in the church, but they've never really received Jesus Christ. And I think when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of surprises. A lot of surprises. It's going to be, oh, you're there? I can't believe you made it. And somebody looks back at you and says, I can't believe you made it either. And then we're going to have a lot of things where we're going to be saying, gosh, that person's not here. Now, I don't know if this is actually going to happen because we're not going to forget, we're going to forget this experience here. But I'm just thinking there's a lot of people that are going to be there you're going to be shocked at. And there's a lot of people that aren't going to be there that you're going to be shocked at. Folks, it's our job. It's our job while we're here to examine ourselves. 2 Thessalonians 13, 5 through 6. We are to examine yourself. Test yourself to see whether Jesus Christ is in you, whether you are docimos, genuine, or adocimos, not genuine. First John, we went through many things that help us to indicate whether we're true or not. And there's like 10 different things, but you can narrow it down to three primary things. And we did this in the study. We talked about the doctrinal test. Who is Jesus Christ? We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son, the eternal Son. All world religion and all cults deny this. We believe that Jesus Christ is real. That's the doctrinal test. The moral test is, do we obey Christ's commands? Do we obey the things that Jesus taught? That's the moral test. And then the love test is, do we have a love for the brethren? Do we genuinely like to be with other people in the body of Christ? Now, in describing these churches, there's four things that each church has in common. Four things common to each church. First is the description of the glorified Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not, but every single church is going to have some aspect of the glorified Jesus that we saw in the first chapter. This, this you know, eyes, you know, eyes like fire and hair white as, white as wool, you know, that whole picture of Jesus like God incarnate. There's a little description in each one. Ephesus talks about the seven stars in his right hand, and he walked in the midst of the seven lampstands. It's specifically speaking that he's in the midst of his church, and he sees what Ephesus is doing, losing their first love. In Smyrna, he says he's the first and the last, meaning that these people are being persecuted, and he's the first and the last. He is God. He has overcome death. Jesus is in the middle of his church, and he knows exactly where every person is. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is with you. Secondly, he said, we hear these words, I know. I know. Jesus is intimately aware of the condition of each church. I know what's going on in this church. And then he has these words, he that overcomes. He that overcomes. Overcomers, folks, are true believers. When you see the word overcomer in Scripture, that would be a true believer. Overcome is the word nikeo, and it means one who gets the victory. Nikeo, one who gets the victory. Now remember how we get the victory. It isn't our strength. It isn't our power. It isn't our nothing. We bring nothing to the table, okay? It's everything comes from him. And I love Donald Barnhouse. You've heard me say this 
1173 times. Well, this is 74. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit is the rod of iron up our spines that allows us to stand. He gives us the victory. If we walk in the Spirit and we are filled with the Spirit, we'll live a victorious, Spirit-filled life. So, He knows about our conditions. He knows us intimately. Overcomers. Overcomers. Overcome all the challenges of life. They get the victory. 1 John 5, 4. We are those who overcome the world. The world does not overcome us. The world will never overcome the true church. Remember what Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, against his church. Why? Because he's in it. He's in the midst of them. And those who are really connected to him will be overcomers. And then he has this statement, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I want to suggest to you something. God, when we talk about church, just think about yourself. Okay, we think about a corporate body. We think about buildings and that. No, the church are individuals. And he's speaking individually to each person. Hear what the Spirit is saying. You can choose to heed the Word of God or you can ignore the Word of God. Overcomers heed the Word of God and do not buy into a non-biblical worldview. We're overwhelmed with this. Remember, we've said this multiple times. You're getting contrary views on who God is. You're getting a contrary worldview from the world continually. We stick with what the Word of God says, and we will not be overcome by a non-biblical worldview. The following points will be covered in each church. First of all, the destination. There will be a destination to each church, and is the messenger. Now, the messenger was either the angel, which means messenger, or the pastor of the church. But there will be some person there receiving the message, but it's always directed to a congregation, always directed to a group. And secondly, we see the description of Jesus taken from Revelation 1. And there will always be a commendation, what they did well, or a condemnation, what they didn't do well, an exhortation to encourage that church, and a promise will be given to each individual church. Again, that's not in your outline. That's one of the things I would have put in there, but it was getting too lengthy. So, the church of Ephesus lost their first love. So, verse 1, the destination, the destination. Let's just read it. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Again, the, the, some people believe it's a pastor. Some people believe it's a, an angel. But anyway, receiving this message. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the the seven golden lampstands. That would be the angel of the churches, the seven stars, the lampstands again are the churches. So with that stated, the destination is the messenger of each church. Again, it could be a local pastor, but definitely its message is to a congregation, to a people, to a people within a specific group, a specific church. Each church member is responsible for the message, to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. It's personal. It's a message from Jesus to you, right to your heart, right to you personally. Now, just a little bit of background on the church of Ephesus. It was a great commercial city at the time of John, at the time of Jesus. It had a natural harbor. It had a strategic location. It was, right, it was built on a main road, so it had a lot of trade, but it also had false worship. There was Artemis that was there. That was a false goddess who had a grotesque head and many breasts, and its focus was on sensual pleasure. Now, because of this false goddess, there was an industry that was created there of silversmiths, and they would make idols that they would sell for profit. When Paul went to that city in Acts chapter 19, verse 24, he caused a riot because so many people are getting saved that that's the silversmiths were starting to lose money, and they got ticked off and provoked a riot in Ephesus. They became so enamored with the sexuality of this goddess that they started to slip away from their desire to keep the city up. And the harbor became silted. It became plugged up, and Ephesus started to lose its influence. Most of the trade then started to go to Smyrna. Ephesus had a disease. See if you can identify this. The disease of sensual unrighteousness which corrupted the people. And the people lost their willingness 
to ply a commendable trade, and the light of Ephesus died out. And when you go there today, it's in ruins. There's nothing there. It died out. Now, does this sound familiar to you living here in this country today? I bet it does. I bet it does. America, I would suggest, has the same disease, and the light is dimming and likely to go out soon if we do not change course. Look, you can't ignore God and expect to be blessed. You cannot say as a nation we don't believe in God anymore or he's just one of a whole bunch of other gods and think you're going to be blessed. You don't have any light then. The light's dimming in America where sensuality is, is at the forefront. We talk about there's sex all over the place. And then there's this thing that's happening in our country now, and I bet you can identify it. People are more and more inclined to not want to work and to get a handout from the government. You wonder why socialism is rising? America has lost in the trades. For every five, five people that are, are retiring out of the trades, there's one to replace them. There's such a massive need. If people want to work and be trained, they can work in this culture. But there's, a, there's an election that we're not doing this. We're relying on the government. And if you rely on the government, what does the government become? It becomes your God. It is what you start to worship because they're providing all of your needs. On top of all of this, America has experienced the the awfulness since 1973 of killing its unborn. And now we're facing the total national legalization of drugs, a drug that promotes apathy and a who cares attitude. You smoke some pot, this is what's going to happen to you. Who cares? Don't be so excited about stuff. Work? Why you want to work? Yeah, that's the, yeah, we need more of that. Give me what I need to, you know, socialism. Give me my income so that I don't have to work and I can just stay apathetic. And, of course, we had the legalization of same-sex marriage. Folks, America's light is dimming. Its light is dimming, and it is sad. Now, what do you think that Jesus is saying to America today? We know what he said to the, to, to the nation of Israel. We know what God said to the nation of Israel. Turn and live. Turn and live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should perish? Turn and live. Ezekiel 18.23. The destination of the church of Ephesus, the body of believers, was specifically a message to them. They were losing their first love. We also saw a description of Jesus. He holds the seven stars in his hands. There's a true church in America, folks, a remnant church, and Jesus is in the midst of that church. The rest of them, he's absent. There is a true church that's really the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's the head of the church, okay? And we are the, his servants, and he's in the midst of that church. Jesus will give his messengers and his church, folks, the ability to stand through persecution. Now, I am not a prophet, and I am not a son of a prophet or anything like that, but it doesn't take a lot to figure out what's happening to this country. As we decline and as Christians become more and more a target, you are intolerant people because you're not embracing what the rest of the folks are. It seems to me that it's not far-fetched that persecution is on the horizon for the true church, for the true church. Now, how, how do I know that you're going to be able to stand when that comes? Because it's come to most of the world. Most of the churches in the world, you, the church in Iran is persecuted. The church in China is persecuted. The church in all the Islamic countries are persecuted, and those folks stand, and they are standing like a bull in the blizzard. They are not going to be moved. They will not compromise their faith. And many of them even die for their faith, and Christ is in their midst. And his presence makes all the difference in the world. We're not talking about the soft, cream-puffed church of America. We're talking about men and women of steel with a rod of iron up their spine that stand in those cultures for the truth, no matter what. Jesus is in our midst right now. He's giving us the strength to stand right now in the trials that we're facing. This is his promise. Jesus promised to overcomers, carry out your mission. And he says this, 
very specific to each person. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission in Matthew 28.20. The reason that you can overcome, the reason that you can have Nikeo, that you can be victorious, is that God is with you. I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Verse 2 and 3 and verse 6, we see the commendation, the things that they've done well. I know your works, your labor, your patience, eupomone, your patience with, with conditions and pe- that's that sort of thing, that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. That's a big thing today with this new apostolic reformation that's going on with apostles and the prophets coming to the forefront. Oh, no, no. We've tested them, have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored to, for my namesake and have not become weary. This sounds like a terrific church, doesn't it? And in verse 6, he says this, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and watch what Jesus says, which I also hate. Now, if you say hate today, that's hate speech. But there are things that God hates, things that, that, are, that are very disconcerting to him. These are the things that they have done well. Notice the list. Your work, your labor, your patient. Folks, I want to tell you right now that Jesus Christ is intimately aware of your works that, he's, that you are doing for the body of Christ. He is intimately aware of that. These people worked hard. They weren't lazy. They weren't apathetic. This is the get-going and get-doing church. They're full speed ahead. They would not put up with evil. They would not put up with evil. And I say that's good news in a, in, a, in a culture that was filled with Artemis idols. They would not put up with it. They called sin, sin, and they called wrong, wrong. Now, that's what, where the church is falling down today, where it's not calling sin, sin, and wrong, wrong. It's real simple. Stick with the Word and do what Jesus says. It's not complex. And then the church called out false teachers, false apostles. Folks, they weren't politically correct. They would have been the ones that were intolerant. And he, watch what they said. They called them liars. You guys are liars. I imagine they named names and they tested them. How do we test someone? You're a Berean. You compare it with what the Scripture says. That's what you guys are doing right now, making sure that I say what I'm supposed to say. If I say the wrong thing, I get a and that's what you're supposed to do if I'm off. There are people that are very skilled at twisting the Scriptures to say what they want. Beware of Scripture twisters. So, the church persevered. They did not become weary. They did not give up. The church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I don't know if you know what the Nicolaitans were, but that means they were the group that meant to rule over the people, to create a distinction between the clergy, that is the, what would be called the professional church people, the, the, the pastors, the popes, the, those, the, those people. There's a distinction between them and the laity. There's nothing like that in Scripture. There's nothing like that in Scripture. To rule over, to create a distinction. Folks, this is power and control. What I say you do, what I say that you do, the Bible never suggests nor supports such a separation. There's no such thing. Folks, the body of Christ is one. We are all one. We are fitting in with the spiritual gift that each one of us has to edify, to encourage, to build up the body. There's no, no, there's no super duper leader. That's above anybody else. Now, I'll qualify that in just a second. There's no church leader that's super holy or anything like that. The leadership, the gifting of pastor, teacher, or elder are to serve the body, are to serve the body. We're servant leaders. Now, there is authority that God has put within his church. There is a hierarchy. God has established deacons, and he's established elders and that sort of thing to run the church. And the church is supposed to respect their leadership and that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that the leader's a super-duper holy person. Pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift, just like all the other spiritual gifts. So, 
Irenaeus wrote this about the Nicolaitans. He said that Nicholas, who was made a deacon in Acts chapter 6, was a false believer who later became apostate. Now, God has done something to protect his church against apostates, against these false people that rise up from the wolves, from the false teachers. He's raised up pastors, shepherds, or the Bible calls these elders. These are elders in the church. Acts 20, 29 through 31, the church of Ephesus had elders. And Paul said he did not, he did not cease to speak all the full counsel of God. He gave the full counsel of God, all of the word of God. And he said that there'd be wolves coming in and without. Yeah. Well, remember how Satan comes? He masquerades as an angel of light and as ministers, as ministers of righteousness. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. Jesus warned many times for us not to be deceived, not to be deceived. And remember, the attacks on the church will come from without, but the most dangerous attacks are from within, where congregations start to crumble and fall because the Bereans have not said, that's wrong, no more, that's wrong. And they've capitulated. And when you take the word of God out, people just tend to follow whatever their leader says without any challenge. Now, the condemnation is in verse 4, and this is the saddest words. Nevertheless, all this great stuff that you had, nevertheless, I have this against you and that you have left your first love. Left your first love. That word left is a very sad word. It means this, to send away, to dismiss your first love. You have sent Jesus away, and you have dismissed him because you're really busy. You're really doing what you think you need to, have, need to do. The busy church the busy life, folks, is a setup for drifting and dismissing. It starts with drifting, and then it's dismissing. When Jesus is the number one priority, this won't happen. But when he's not the number one priority, it can happen. Drifting can be so subtle. It can be so subtle. They got busy. They forgot the warmth. They forgot the tenderness. They forgot about spending time with Jesus. They were very busy people doing a lot of busy stuff, look good. And a lot of it was good, but they lost their first love. Now, a drifter preventer is time with the master. You cannot hedge on this. You cannot make it through this thing with all of the information that is coming at us today in volumes designed to take us away from God. You cannot survive this without time with the master. And I would suggest this is every single day. Start your day with Jesus. Start it with Jesus. End it with Jesus. Help me through it, Jesus, and thank you for helping me through it, Jesus. So, what might this drifting look like? Well, their worship became perfunctory. Nice little word, isn't it? Perfunctory. Yes. Done with ease or effort. Not, not a lot of thought going behind it. What do you see in a lot of places? People jumping around, shouting and screaming, smoke, lights, action, camera, roll them, that sort of thing. Going through the religiosity. They keep the outer appearance of religion. And then you have those, from that extreme, you have the stay home folks. I think I'll stay home this week. I just don't feel like going. Now, let me just ask you a question. How many, you don't have to raise your hand. In your heart, raise your hand. How many times do you not feel like doing something? Okay, I'm the pastor. I don't feel like coming here sometimes. I don't feel like coming on Tuesday. I don't feel, 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 feel. Forget the feelings. You know, feelings, nothing worse than feelings. Forget your feelings. And walk by faith. The drift can be so imperceptible. And so many people will drift away and suddenly find their lives have plummeted into an abyss. It's a free fall. The road to drift is paved with several things. You forfeit prayer. And I think if you forfeit fellowship together, we strengthen one another. We need one another. 
When you forfeit reading and meditating on the Word because you're just too busy, I just can't get this in today because i got a busy schedule today. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to suffer for that. When I withdraw from fellowship, when I withdraw from accountability, when I seek my own desires, I am on the road to drift. Proverbs 18.1 is such a good, good proverb. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. Don't isolate yourself. An isolated ember becomes a cold ember. The fire goes out. And listen to this. In one generation, the believers had become lax and cold and drifted from the things of God. We call this the second generation syndrome. We saw this in the book of Judges. Over and over and over on our Tuesday night study, where we just finished the book of Judges. Over and over, they reverted back. The second generation syndrome, they, they lost their faith. This is a huge problem. How do we prevent this? Well, pass on real faith, a true commitment to Christ. Allow others to see that you are all in. Not tippy-toeing in your Christianity. Not a Sunday morning Christian and forget it for the rest of the week. I've done my duty. Oh, no, that you're all in. Live, and secondly, live out your faith without hypocrisy. No mask wearing, no acting. You know who can see through your acting, your hypocrisy? People you work with. And you know who else? Your kids. Your kids will see through this in a second. And then thirdly, be honest and be real. When you make a mistake, own it. Own it and confess it, expose it. It just brings down the barrier between people and really helps with your kids. Fourthly, and I think this is so important because you, if you're an over-exuberant, I don't know if this is such a thing as this, but if you're an obnoxious Christian, let's just put it that way, don't be a know-it-all. Don't be a know-it-all. People retract from know-it-alls. You know who really retracts from know-it-alls? Your children. Your children. They won't want your faith. They won't want to be like you. What's our job? We are to teach. We are to model. We are to give direction. But we are not to manipulate or coerce, force them. We are to encourage them, not coerce them nurture and nudge them in the right direction, but they will have to make their own decision on this. You can't make this happen as much as I want to. I can't. Don't compromise under pressure. Our culture will demand this. People you work with will demand this. And you know who else will demand this? Guess who? Your children. Everyone's going to Cancun, Dad, on spring break. Can't I go? I'm going with the good group. Oh, really? Really? No, you can't go. I mean, it's, but you, so don't compromise. But in not compromising, hear this. Don't be obnoxious. Don't become angry. Don't become degrading. Simply, we stand on the principles of God's word. That's what we do. With a gentle spirit, not be moved. And finally, we're going to be God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. And folks, this is easier said than done. Everybody likes, wants to be liked. But God is the number one priority. Don't lose your first love. Don't drift. Verse 5, the exhortation, remember your first love and repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, your lampstand, lampstand was the church. I will, I will remove your influence. That's what he's saying here. So, for God's cry to those who have drifted away, floated down the river of this world, is repent. Metaneo, we've used this, known this word in the past. A true change of heart, a change of direction, a change of mind, a regret for the course pursued according to Zadiati's text, Greek text. God, and remember this, for those who are turning back to God who have wandered from him, is this the picture you see with God? About time you got back here. Hmm? Or is it this picture? Welcome, welcome. That's the prodigal, welcome. And he just wants to grab you, give you a great, great big hug. That's what, you, that's what he'll do for you. If we do not repent, though, there's a warning. Our lampstand will be removed. 
our, our influence will be removed. Folks, it starts so subtly. A little compromise here. A minute rationalizing what I'm doing. Then I lie to myself. Then I make excuses. Everybody else is doing it. Every, why can't I do it? Before you know it, you're out of fellowship, you're isolated, and your ember just gets colder and colder and fizzles out. Fizzles out. This can happen to anyone. How in the world can we guard against this? Well, first of all, let go and let God lead your life. Nothing, folks, nothing, nothing, nothing beats spending time with Him. Secondly, do some introspection. We already talked about this. Examine yourself. Thirdly, when you catch yourself starting to drift, folks, the current of life will take you away. You take your oars out of your Christian disciplines, and automatically you are going to drift towards the world. You will drift away from the things of God. So we have to be rowing, rowing. And in this culture, how fast do you have to row? You have to really (laughs) dig in and make progress or else you're going to be taken backwards. Row. And then finally, stay in fellowship. Don't allow yourself to, to drift and become isolated. We need one another. Remember, stay close to Jesus, and he will stay close to you. Now, remember this. Whenever there is a distance between me and my Lord, I moved. He didn't move. Okay? It was me that moved. And finally, the promise to overcomers, verse 7. He who has an ear, oh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to each one of us. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear overcomes. Remember, overcomers are believers. They overcome the obstacles of life. The promise is made to, again, to individual believers. Now hear this for just a second. The church, if a church goes astray, it is the believer who must overcome, have the victory. It's the individual's responsibility. Again, it's he who has an ear. Him hears, those are male words, but it's, it's all of us, okay? All of us. Churches today, folks, are going off the rails, left and right. They're compromising left and right. We've already mentioned it. We have homosexual pastors embracing homosexual marriage. Transgenderism is now accepted. Abortion, globalism, omit borders. These are all things that God is not for. If a person finds themselves in a compromise, or you hear this word, don't you, a lot, progressive. Oh, we're progressive. You know, progressive to me is just a word for sin, okay? A progressive church, folks, you are responsible to do one thing, get your little tennis shoes on, and run for your life. Run for your life. You don't stay in a church that has changed. Denominations are changing right before our eyes. They're just falling left and right, compromising, compromising. You do not stay in a church because that's where your family went. All our lives we went to this church, and I'll never leave here. I got my plaque right there on the wall. No, you don't stay there for that reason. Or all my friends are there, or they got these cool programs. I can't believe the program. No, if they are compromising, you get your tennis shoes on, and you exit stage left. Overcomers, folks, will eat of the tree of life. That tree of life was mentioned in Genesis chapter 2.9, and in Genesis 3.22, Adam, after he sinned, was guarded from the tree of life. We'll see this again later on in our studies, the tree of life. Jesus expects overcomers to overcome. Being an overcomer isn't talking about being a super Christian. This is the expected thing for a Christian. A tree of life is a tree that gives life, both the fullness of life and eternal life. And we'll again see more of this, chapters 21 and 22. Closing, closing, the letter to the church of Ephesus. Complacency, growing cold, becoming lax, folks, is the enemy of the modern-day Christian. Would you agree? Okay, hey. We must be constantly on guard against drifting, of losing our first love. There's many things that are trying to take us away from our first love, of dismissing Jesus. 
The prevention for drift is of the utmost importance. We must continue in prayer, continue in the Word of God, continue meeting together, encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. Folks, we've got a new thing going on. Remember, Jesus said there'd be famines and pestilence in diverse places. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Well, look, we got a locust herd that's going crazy in, in Asia, eating everything in sight. And we have the coronavirus now that is spreading around. Famines and pestilence in diverse places. Is it easy to walk different than everybody else? To be different than everybody else? To constantly not quite fit in? No, it's not so easy. But it's important that we do. Look at the glitter of the world is there to pull you away. The glitter of the world is there to pull you away. The cravings of our flesh want to be pulled away. Okay, that's that unredeemed part of us that has this connection with the world. And, of course, we have an enemy of our flesh, the demonic realm, that wants to entice us, to deceive us, to take us away. We must avoid the second-generation sinner by living genuine Christian lives fully devoted to our Savior. Folks, this is not a time to be half in, half out. This is all in or you will cave in. Okay, all in or you will cave in. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The nation of Israel struggled with the same problem, the second-generation syndrome. You know, God had an answer for this. God had an answer for the second-generation syndrome. If you would, I know we're almost done. Just a second. It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You guys are very familiar with the Shema. Here. Shema means here. The setting is this. The nation is going into the promised land. You'll pick it up in verse 4. But please listen to these introductory words. It says in in, in verse 2, Obey what God has commanded you. Observe observe what he's taught you in the land. Because you're crossing over into this false God land. We're living in a false God land. We've already, this is where we live, immersed in these false gods. This is what you are to do, that you may fear the Lord your God, keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command to you and your sons, and your grandsons, your whole family, your whole lineage. Not just you, you pass it down, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. And be careful to observe it, and it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says these words. This is how you do it. This is how you prevent drifting. Hear, Shema O Israel again, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, our God, our Elohim, the Lord is one, Echad. Remember, complex unity speaks of a multiple persons in the Godhead. We believe in a triunity. And this is what you do. You shall love the Lord your God and watch the alls. If you want to be successful with this, all of your heart, with all of your soul, which is your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions given over to God, with all of your strength, with everything that is in you. And this is what we are to do. And these words which I command you today shall be in your Heart, part of who you are, not peripheral, not just, just, just cursory. He says, this is who you are. You are a servant of the Most High God. This is who you are. You identify as a Christian unashamedly, unashamedly. And watch what you are to do. You are to teach them diligently to your children. This is training. This is training. And how do you train them? You don't banter them to death. This is, part of, this is so much a part of your life. It's just, just the way that you, you progress in life, how you present yourself in life. You shall talk of them when you sit. It's part of your life in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. It's always before you. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Folks, this is how we are to train the next generation. This is what we are to do. We are to pass on godly values. This is how we prevent the second generation. At least we do our part. There's a world that is taking our kids away, taking our families away. 
taking fellow Christians away who used to be fervent in the faith and are now compromised. That's what is happening before us. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church today. The Shema here. 50 to 100 years ago, your child or you or your friend would have had a thought that came into their minds about who is God and what does he want me to do. And what that person would do would go to his father, go to his grandfather, go to his uncle, go to a friend, a Christian friend, and they would ask that question. What happens today? A young person or any person goes to the Internet. And on the Internet, you get a contrary view of this world, which never happened before. Never happened before. Teach your kids to turn to the Word of God, to the people of God, not the Internet. Prevent the second-generation syndrome, folks. Do not lose your first love. Sila. Next week, the Church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, which, by the way, I think is the predominant church in our world today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please do your work in the sight of each one of our hearts. Lord, you've spoken to each person here today. We hear something different. We zone in, we zone out, but I know that you've spoken to each one of us today. Help us to heed the Shema, to hear what you have said to us. May we walk in your truth, and may we be impactful in our sphere of influence, all in. We shall love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with every bit of our being, uncompromised in this culture. We represent you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's an honor to do that, Lord. Thank you that you've allowed us to have this part to play while we are here, occupying space on this earth. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.